Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist. Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Donna Miller, your host for this episode. Today, we welcome our guest, the 2008 Roll of Law Award recipient and a priest from the Diocese of Erie, Pennsylvania. To many canonists, his name is synonymous with canon law, especially in the context of the Catholic University of America. We welcome Father John Beale today to our podcast. Welcome, Father Beale. Thank you. We are so grateful that you're with us today. I would like to go back to the early 1980s. I understand that you were assistant chancellor for your diocese in Erie, Pennsylvania. How did you become assistant chancellor? Was that before you went to study canon law, simultaneous? How did that begin? Well, after ordination, I had been teaching in a high school for seven years. And the diocese at that time had gotten a new bishop who was interested, very interested, in reviving a very moribund tribunal in Erie. So he was looking for uh, priests who would be interested in going to study canon law. But the practice that we followed in Erie at that time and subsequently, although not most immediately, was that if someone were uh, interested in studying canon law, uh, he would work in the tribunal chancery for a year And if at the end of that year, the diocese was interested in continuing his services in that area, and he was willing to move on to graduate studies, then he would go and study canon law. So I started in the uh, summer of 1980 going to the uh, Matrimonial Tribunal Institute uh, here at Catholic University, at Theological College, and got a crash course in annulment practice and procedure. And I worked uh, 1980 into 1981 at uh, the tribunal, actually, or the chan- my title was assistant chancellor, but I was mostly doing tribunal work or marriage work. Did you use the schemata of the new code because it hadn't been promulgated yet? Well, at that point, uh, studying canon law was a juggling act. This is why if you go into room 111 in Caldwell Hall of Catholic University, you'll see long tables. Our experience as students, and some of my classmates can repeat this, you've talked to Barbara Ann Cusack, who was with me. We sat beside each other in Caldwell Hall room 111 for three years, but also Pat Cogan, the former, uh, had used to have your job, and Lynn Gerald. The late Rick Bass was one of our classmates, as was the late Herb May, uh, Ralph Gross from Milwaukee. I'm missing a number, but we had quite a group because it was known that the new code was coming. So our study, as we first of all had in one place, we had the 1917 code, which was still the law. Then we had a copy of the Flannery version of the documents of Vatican II with the post-conciliar legislation, because that was often the law as it existed at the moment. And then 
we had whatever was the latest schema of the section of the code we were working on in that particular class. By the time we got there, uh, the 1980s schema of the canons of a code of canon law was circulating for comment. So we worked primarily with that, but we also worked with the other schemata. So it was, uh, you had to juggle all this stuff at the time. Who were some of the professors that you recall from that time? Well, at that point, one we first had was uh, Jack Lynch, who taught the history of canon law and walked us through readings in the Corpus Juris Canonici. Tom Green was on the faculty at the time. Jim Provost was the chair of the, well, no, he wasn't yet the chair. He was working his way through tenure. Bob Kennedy, who died last year, was on the faculty. Marty Lavin was on the faculty at the time. Uh, Les Orsi was on the faculty. Uh, he's still holding forth at the Georgetown Law School. And uh, Wally Paschal, Father Walter Paska, who was then the rector of St. Josephat Seminary, the Ukrainian seminary up on the hill, taught Eastern law. And I think that was the fact. Oh, Fred McManus, of course, was uh, teaching liturgical law, but he was also the academic vice president. Wow, that's quite a name dropping, if you will, but that's... Except and now, for Les and uh, Jack Lynch, I think they all have gone to their reward. 83, you got your JCL, then you went right into doctoral studies? Mm-hmm. I uh, continued and then was defended the doctorate in the spring of 1985. Okay, and then you went back to the diocese, worked a few years, and how did, how did you get let go to go be a full-time professor? Well, uh, I had been working, I had been appointed judicial vicar in 1984. So I was working as the judicial vicar for eight years before I came back here. And at the time, the United States law was still allowed for mandatory retirement at 70. And at 1992, both Fred McManus and Les Orsi turned 70. So they had to retire. That's otherwise Les might still be teaching here. Uh, but so they retired, which left a big gap in the faculty. And because I had shown some small talent and had been publishing, the faculty asked me if I would be willing to come and teach on the faculty. By that point, I also already had been teaching as an adjunct in the summer program one month. We had started the summer program in 1988. So I was teaching in that, and I had shown that I was not a complete incompetent in the classroom. And my bishop at the time was willing to allow me to come, and his rationale was that the Diocese of Erie has benefited over the years from the larger church. Uh, and at a time, from time to time, we as a rural diocese had an obligation to uh, repay the larger church for its service to us. 
So he was willing to do that as soon as my replacement was available. And at that point, my designated replacement as judicial vicar, Mark Barczyk, uh, was completing his doctorate here at Catholic University. And when he had completed it and returned to the diocese and been reoriented, Bishop Troutman was willing to let me go. And of course, now we know that uh, he's Bishop Barczyk, moved on from that role. Yes, he's the <laughs> Bishop of Altoona, Johnstown. So you joined the CLSA then in 1983, and I take it got involved with committees and other work? Mm -hmm. What kinds of things do you recall about those early years when you were involved with CLSA? Well, I think one of the most interesting thing I was involved in was the uh, seminar that came as a result of a motion uh, from the uh, convention and the member it was right after there were apostolic visitations of the diocese of richmond uh, bishop walter sullivan was subjected to a apostolic visitation and then archbishop uh, hunthausen in seattle and that seemed like a canonical anomaly so the members of the society wanted us to look at this institute of apostolic visitations of dioceses and bishops and um, they appointed mike place and i as the chair and we put together a committee that made a report at the seattle convention uh, which i think was one of the more interesting projects i've ever been involved in I will have to look back at that convention proceedings and see if I can. And there was a special mm -hmm. issue of the jurist with all the seminar papers. Okay, that was uh, when Jim Provost was uh, one of the contributors to the thing, and uh, he was the editor of the jurist at the time. So that was kind of early on. So you were really, that was a pretty heavy load, I would think. I was too. still in Erie at the time. And uh, yeah. I did a, what I found a fascinating and unique history of the Institute of Apostolic Visitations. Was that one of the, I'm, I'm sure it was one of the most notorious, but was that one of the first ones in the US? Oh no, there had been others. Um, Usually they were more connected with financial matters where the bishop had run the diocese into the ground. So this one was a little bit unique that it was This was went a little bit deeper and raised a lot of theological issues theology. and raised issues about the uh, authority of the diocesan bishop vis-a-vis -vis the Holy See. Do you think something like that um, would happen again today? Well, we have moved in that direction with Vos Estes uh, and the enabling norms for it, where a bishop is accused of uh, sexual misconduct with a vulnerable person or with mishandling complaints of them. We are essentially conducting apostolic visitations. What happened uh, under the auspices of Archbishop Laurie uh, with regard to Bishop Bransfield in Wheeling, Charleston, West Virginia, was, although the name has not been used, an apostolic visitation. Because if you look at 
you know, Vos Estes, and the one in Wheeling Charleston was pre-Vos Estes, but it is the Holy See that deputizes a bishop to look into the complaints of wrongdoing. This is an apostolic visitation. So the one uh, that you can get at the website of the Post, if you want to read all of the gory details, was an apostolic visitation. Archbishop Lori was deputized by the Congregation for Bishops to look into the complaints about uh, financial and sexual about uh, Bishop Bransfield. I hope that our listeners will also take a few minutes to listen to your podcast where we just recorded your rule of law response. And Mm -hmm. in there, you mention legitimation and accountability and transparency. Do you see those as, as coming into play in this context? Yeah, and however, we still have accountability structures in the church that are completely upward. We're only very slowly accepting the fact that those in authority in the church are also accountable to the people of God, and if they expect the faithful to follow, uh, it's accountability to them and transparency in their administration is important. I think uh, the thing with, it's come out into the open now, thanks to the fact that the whole report was leaked to the Washington Post and they made it available. But the thing in Wheeling Charleston, the thing that made it so painful is this, with the financial issues, there was all of this money being used extravagantly in what is arguably one of the poorest dioceses in the country in terms of its population. Now, the diocese apparently has a set of oil wells in Texas that provide it with revenue. So they have money, but the state, the people of West Virginia are poor. And so you have this money being spent $100 a day on flowers for the bishop's office which is scandalous. And we need to be transparent about uh, how we spend the money of the people of God. Absolutely. In your acceptance speech, you mentioned, again, the lack of transparency, and you say there's lack of transparency in the annulment process, lack of transparency in dealing with wayward clerics and managing church finances. Do you think that some part of that lack of transparency is because those who would have to defend or explain it maybe don't know how to do that? Well, I think that may be part of it, but I think what you really have is a heavy dose of clerical paternalism. The father knows best. You see that in the annulment process where the law is very clear that at the end of the process, the sentence is to be published to the member, to the parties. They have a right to have a copy of the sentence, the whole sentence, every word of the sentence, but most tribunals don't do that. Now, part of it is a cover-up for sloppy reasoning, but also uh, we sort of expect them to Uh, except the fact that father or sister or the all-knowing clericalism can, it doesn't always involve a white collar, uh, no better. And so now you're, you're a child, now go your way. And 
sometimes I think that we would better serve people if we let them see it all. I had one experience when I was judicial vicar uh, of a woman who was in the process of becoming Catholic, who was a lawyer uh, and wanted to uh, ask me after I interviewed her at the end of the process to try to wrap things up if I, she could see a copy of the decision when I finished it. And I said, okay. And I thought, well, I'll see what she makes of it. And so I sent it to her. Now, it was not a difficult case, and the, the facts were largely uncontested. She was a 16-year-old high school student in rural Pennsylvania who got pregnant. And the answer to everything was to get married and uh, move on. And so she moved on to two children, and not surprisingly, the marriage didn't work out. And she managed to finish high school. She finished college somehow and went to law school on a scholarship at the University of Pennsylvania. Now she wanted to marry a Catholic and wanted to become a Catholic. So I wrote up the sentence and I sent her a copy. And she wrote back and said, thank you for the copy of the sentence. I agree with everything you said. This has been a encouragement to me to consider continue my desire to become a Catholic because when I started I was skeptical of this whole process but now I see that it is a legal process that I can respect uh, and so I have a great deal of respect for the church as a result. Um, now I'm not sure it would have been that way if the facts had been more in dispute uh, but uh, she was able to read it and see that uh, why the church had found her marriage invalid. Uh, and I think we gotta be forthcoming with people about the way things are. You mentioned that analogy between the church as father, the paternalistic, uh, and the children. You mentioned rambunctious, naughty, uh, precious children. Do you think, I know you mentioned that Barbara and Cusick was in your class you think that the demographic shift from mostly clergy who were studying canon law in the late 80s to probably, I would say at least half maybe now are, you know that because you're a professor. What, what do you see in terms of that demographic shift and will that help to understand? I, I think it certainly will. The uh, meetings of the Canon Law Society these days are much less a meeting of a clerical club uh, an old boys club than they were when I first went to a convention in 1984. But there is something about the um, structure and ethos of the church that has a tendency to clericalize lay people. And unless we fight for accountability, um, let me just give you a, an example, and I think it's where canon law has to begin to develop uh, processes for making sure there is justice in the church. Uh, last week, the Supreme Court uh, decided uh, two cases involving teachers in Catholic schools. 
on religious liberty grounds, they classified teachers in Catholic schools as under the ministerial exception, no matter what they grade or subject they taught, and therefore not protected by age discrimination laws or the Americans with Disability Act. Now, I don't want to get into the Supreme Court jurisprudence of whether or not that was a good First Amendment decision. But it seems to me that if we as a church are going to proclaim justice, we ought to be able to deal justly with our employees. And so if someone claims that they were injured, lost a job because of a disability, there ought to be an internal church process where they can uh, make their case. Now, um, without getting into either of those two cases, the Guadal uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe or the Beale case, that's B-I-E-L, no relative, uh, they both involve Catholic schools who let teachers go. One who had announced to them that she was going to need time off because she was having treatment and surgery for breast cancer. And the next thing she knows, she was out of a job. Uh, the other one um, was at least claimed that it was because of her age that she was let go. There may be lots of other factors involved uh, that would make these prudent decisions, but the claim is there, and we ought to have a process for people to make their case, and if they have been treated wrongly, to be vindicated. And I don't want to get into the Supreme Court thing, but we shouldn't hide behind the ministerial exception as an excuse to pe treat people unfairly. And we don't mm -hmm. have canonical processes at the present time for dealing with that sort of situation. Now, during the code revision process, there was the prospect of administrative tribunals to deal with that sort of thing. And as we come get clear that we are free from civil liability on these issues, uh, hiring and firing decisions. Uh, we have to have a process to be fair. Uh, back a long time ago, the bishops of the United States put out a pastoral letter, Economic Justice for All. And in that letter, they said that one of the fundamental rights of employees is freedom from arbitrary dismissal. And although they recognized that they were talking about the economy, they also said that in this regard, the church should be exemplary. And that was in italics. We're not exemplary in our dealing with our employees. And we, as canonists, need to work on that. It's so fascinating that you say that because obviously as a civil lawyer, I'm aware of those two cases and there was an article in NCR online where there was a commentator mentioning those and he said the decisions were right in terms of the constitution, but as you said, the church needs that process. And he talks about the schema that had the administrative process and that it was just never carried through on. So the other men mention that I was gonna make, I've got the green commentary that you were one of the co-editors on. In fact, you and Linda Robitaille wrote 
pretty much the entire section in book three on marriage, yes. if I recall correctly. But then you went on to write a, a piece in uh, book seven on the, the oral contentious process. Is that underutilized or is that a process you think that just never came to be utilized or am I wrong and it's being utilized? Well, it has had a life after death um, in that if you look at that oral contentious process and you look at the uh, special process before the bishop in Metis Udex, it looks suspiciously like the oral contentious process. In addition, the Canon Law Society sponsored initiatives in due process, uh, and one of the initiatives that they sponsored was under Archbishop Weekland in Milwaukee, they set up an administrative tribunal that uh, used this process for resolving administrative disputes in the archdiocese. They structured it so that it was the way the archbishop was announced in advance that he would exercise his discretion to resolve recourses to him against administrative acts of other administrators. And uh, so the administrative tribunal would reach a decision and it would become final unless one of the parties appealed it to the archbishop himself. And there were a couple of cases that were decided, tried and decided under that. I was the judge on one of them that involved a complaint by music ministers in a parish about their dismissal from the parish. Uh, and we had a one-day trial, and the decision was announced at the end of the day. So this was according to the oral contentious process, uh, and it could be used for this sort of thing. So there's no reason that the bishops have to wait for universal law. Each Episcopal conference could... Uh, there are, there, well, they or the individual bishops uh, mm -hmm. could uh, do it. It's not something the Episcopal Conference could do without a mandate mm -hmm. from the Holy See, but if uh, they wanted to uh, and they saw it as valuable, they could do it. But it's going to come because of prodding from us, mm -hmm. much as the original due process guidelines that were published by the then NCCB back in the 1980s came as a result of ground grassroots prodding from the Canon Law Society of America and its several members. Much as the so-called American procedural norms that finally got our tribunals operation were a result of initiatives from the Canon Law Society that the bishops took to the Holy See and didn't take no for an answer for. Sounds like that would be a great topic for a JCD thesis that perhaps you could direct someone on. <laughs> well, it could be. So as a professor, what kinds of advice might you give to someone thinking of studying Canon Law? Well, I would say two things. One, think broadly. Never think that you are coming to study canon law 
to be involved in a very narrow slice of church ministry. Uh, even if you think you are being prepared to work in the marriage tribunal, you will quickly find, particularly if you're from a small diocese, that you're expected to do all sorts of things. For example, uh, I was sent to study canon law because of the need of the marriage tribunal. But when I returned home, uh, after completing my licentiate in 1983 uh, and into 1984, when I worked, wrapped up my time here with the doctorate, uh, two of the first projects the bishop gave me was, one, to review the proper law of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Northwestern Pennsylvania, a diocesan right religious institute, to uh, see whether he should approve their proper law that was revised in light of the now 1983 code. I had gone through Catholic U without taking the course on consecrated life. So I was suddenly stuck with a job of advising the bishop on this. The second thing he gave me was to take a Society of Apostolic Life of Diocesan Rite that had been incorrectly erected by someone else, or at his, the bishop had erected it at, after someone else gave him bad advice, and to get it reorganized as a private association of the faithful. These were things that I had not bargained on studying. I also had to deal with property issues, both for the diocese and for the uh, various religious institutes in the diocese. So first of all, uh, you may think you're going to concentrate on uh, uh, for marriage and be in the tribunal, but think broadly. Secondly, always when you're picking a thesis or a dissertation topic, pick somewhat, something that you're genuinely interested in, that you really have a passion for. Because if you don't, you'll never finish. I have seen, I've been here now going on 28 years. I have seen lots of students start and get all the way through the coursework and never finish the dissertation because they weren't passionately interested. And when you get to the thesis or dissertation phase, you're already known to be smart enough to do it. The question is, do you have the discipline to sit down in front of the computer and stare at the blank screen until words start to appear and stay sitting there all day if that's what it takes? Because at that stage, almost anything is more interesting than writing your thesis. So you've got to be interested from the start, or you won't sustain the enthusiasm. I think that's why a lot of people choose a JCL thesis, and then they'll know whether that's something they could continue into a JCD if it lends itself. Mm -hmm. 
if you've lost interest at the JCL level in the topic, don't bother to try to expand it. If, unless you have the passion, it won't get done. And that's good advice. And I think it also ties into how many, when I studied starting in 2001, which was the year the penal law exploded, so many candidates said, we never even studied penal law because it wasn't even that relevant. But you never know where, in which direction you'll be called. Well, when I, when I was here as a student from 1981 to 1984, not only did I not take the course in penal law, it wasn't offered. It was understood to be one of those obsolete parts of canon law that we would never use. Uh, little did I know what was coming. You're doing summer school right now? I'm uh, in the middle of summer school right now. I'm teaching the course on temporal goods. Uh, I have about nine students up there in cyberspace. We're all, uh, since, since the middle of March, all our instruction has been online. In theory, the plan is to reopen for ordinary instruction on the 24th of August. We've pushed the beginning of the uh, academic year uh, back a week so that we can send the students home at Thanksgiving and they'll have one week of exclusively online instruction and then final exams, but they will not come back to the university after Thanksgiving until the beginning of the spring semester. Now that's the plan as of 2.15 on July 17th. The coronavirus is going to tell us what uh, actually happens. Yeah, because I think Washington, D.C. is even more, not to say locked down, but we haven't even gotten back into our CLSA offices fully yet either. We're, we got to stage two, and if there are some unpleasant uh, trends, and the mayor has already started talking about going back to phase one, which would be even more restrictions. But Father Bill, I want to thank you for spending time with us today. And so we appreciate all that you've done for the society and for canonists all over the world. Well, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Have a great day. You too.